And it's illogical and irrational to believe that personal supernatural good could or does exist, but that personal supernatural evil could not. You see, if personal supernatural good could exist, why couldn't personal supernatural evil exist as well? Indeed, why wouldn't it? Uh, there's nothing irrational or illogical about believing in demons. Well, the critics say, it's primitive. They say, people back then used to believe in demons when they didn't understand how the world worked. Uh, we used to believe in demons when we didn't understand how, how complex things were. You know, people in the past, they say, didn't understand the nature of disease and epilepsy uh, and mental illness. They didn't understand what these things were, so they attributed it uh, to demons. People back then, they were simplistic, they were naive about how things worked. Now, that may have been true of some ancient peoples, but that was definitely not true of biblical Jewish culture on the overhead. Indeed, the biblical understanding of demons is part of one of, one of the most complex, least simplistic, least naive, most multidimensional, most nuances, most nuanced views of reality that exist. For example, look at Matthew 4.24. We read this. News about Yeshua spread, and the people brought to him the ill, the injured, the demon-possessed, the epileptics, and the paralyzed, and he healed them all. Notice here how the Bible clearly differentiates the demon-possessed from the diseased. The Bible The Jews knew the difference between the physical and the mind. But notice the passage says that not only brought the diseased of the demon-possessed Yeshua, but also the epileptics. Uh, and in the original Greek, this word actually means any kind of insanity, irrational behavior, or seizures. Which means the Bible knows the difference between insanity, mental illness, epilepsy, disease, and demon possession. The Jews in the first century understood all these, all of this. The biblical writers knew and understood these differences and distinctions. Along these same lines, Richard Baxter, who was an English preacher who preached the sermon in London in the 1670s, uh, he had this great title on the overhead for his sermon. What are the best preservatives against melancholy and overmuch sorrow? They knew how to title sermons back then. <laughs> 1670s. What are the best preservatives against melancholy and overmuch sorrow? Which of course means this was a sermon on depression. <laughs> and in the sermon he says, if you're depressed, that according to the Bible, there could be four different bases for your depression. On the overhead, uh, he says, first, you could have a physiological basis your depression, and what you could require might be nutrition, or medicine, or rest. Second, he, said, he says there could be a moral basis for your depression, having to do with, with guilt and shame. And the requirements then would be confession, repentance, restitution, forgiveness, mercy, and grace. Third, he says you might have a mental or psychological basis for your depression. Uh, you might be cast down and discouraged. Uh, you might be weary and emotionally worn out. And in that case, you need love and support and talk and community. And then fourth, he says, there may be an evil demonic root to your depression, in which case you need prayer and the word of God and intercession. Do you see what's so striking about this sermon from way back in the 1670s? How complex and nuanced and sophisticated people's understanding.
understanding was of various problems and how to deal with them biblically. Now, some worldviews are more materialistic than the Bible. And therefore, the answer is always, just take a pill. <laughs> and some worldviews are more psychological than the Bible. And therefore, the answer is always, talk and acceptance. Always. And some worldviews are more, more pharisaic uh, and, and moralistic than the Bible. So the answer for you is, just do the right thing. Just obey. Confess your sins. Repent. And many worldviews are more superstitious than the Bible. And they see demons everywhere. Uh, the devil is the cause of everything that's ever wrong with you in your life. And so the answer to everything is to cast out the demon. But the Bible itself is far more nuanced, far more multidimensional, far, far less reductionistic than any of these other worldviews I've mentioned. The Bible refuses to reduce our problems to a single plane. And it never has a default mode that our problem, oh, it must be physical, it must be mental, it must be psychological, it must be moral, it must be demonic. No. Instead, what the Bible says, and what Richard Baxter said in his sermon, is that these four elements are interlocking. And they're working in someone's life in all sorts of different forms, in different ways and levels. And therefore, there is no one-size-fits-all template. Because the evil and the problems and the difficulties in our lives are complex. And if we try to move out into this world with a less nuanced and less complex understanding than what the Bible has, if you think all your problems are basically physical, or basically mental or psychological, or basically moral, or basically spiritual, if you don't see the complexity of what the Bible says about evil, then it's both out there and it's in here, in us. That is both natural and supernatural. That is both individual and corporate. If you don't see this, then evil is going to defeat you. And the fact that the Bible talks about demons, about personal, supernatural, evil forces in this world, on top of everything else that fits wrong with the world, uh, and with you and me, uh, this helps, to, uh, helps, us to, helps to explain to us this demonic element, helps to explain the intransigence, the intransigence and the intractability of, of our problems. So, for example... It explains the intransigence and the intractability of our psychological problems. Look at the overhead. Uh, 1 Timothy, on the overhead here, Paul says, If you're proud, you will fall into the trap of the devil. And in Ephesians, Paul says, If you're bitter and you hold a grudge, you're going to fall under the influence of the devil. Which is to say, according to the Bible, demonic forces, what do they do? Demonic forces stir up and aggravate all of these other pre-existing factors that mess up your life on the overhead. They aggravate them, uh, they, they stir them up, they, they intertwine them, they entangle them, and that's one of the reasons why so many of your emotional and psychological problems are like dungeons that are double-locked. That's why so many of your problems are so deep. It's complicated. It's a combination of different factors all woven and intertwined together on the overhead. Not only does the existence of personal, supernatural, evil forces explain the intractability and the intransigence of our emotional and our psychological problems, but by the way, this is very important today, that anyone's reading the news, it also explains the depth and the persistence and the obstinance and the stubbornness of our social problems. 
Because there are certain social systems that are so evil that they are destroying people and grinding them and enslaving them and setting us against one another. Communism, socialism, fascism, obvious examples. Then there's the soft forms as well, uh, less obvious, but the soft forms like modern-day progressivism uh, and the so-called critical theory. Uh, all these examples. And yet, here's the interesting thing about all these different systems. If you look at individual people within these systems, they're not always necessarily obviously blatantly evil people. In fact, many times these people appear to be quite ordinary. Uh, ordinary people who are caught up in the cogs and the machinery of an evil system. In other words, these totalitarian political and social systems themselves, the systems themselves are terrible. They're ruining people and persecuting them and controlling them. And yet when you go inside and look at the individuals inside the system who are helping to run the system, like for example, one obvious example, like, like Winston Smith in the famous novel 1984, those working in the evil system are not always evil themselves. Indeed, they're often not different than you and me on the overhead. So what then accounts for all this evil? And the answer is, it's very possible for demonic forces to inhabit a system the same way they can inhabit a person. And this really came home to this great English poet, W.H. Auden, at the beginning of World War II. 1939, he was living in this little place, a neighborhood called Yorkville, was a part of Manhattan in New York City. And back then, many, many people of German descent lived in this neighborhood back then. It was late 1939, he goes to a movie in this neighborhood in Manhattan, which is basically he turned out, out to be a Nazi, Nazi propaganda, propaganda film to justify and defend the Nazis' invasion of Poland earlier that year in 1939. And he was absolutely stunned. His life totally changed because of that movie. Because during the movie, when the Polish people showed up on the screen, members of the audience, his neighbors in New York City, people he knew, people who seemed so tolerant and normal and friendly, they stood up in the middle of the movie theater and shook their fist at the Poles on the screen and yelled, kill them, kill them. Now here's Auden. This sophisticated British intellectual was so shaken by this experience that he said that afterwards he lost his faith in atheism. <laughs> he was an atheist, but he lost his faith in atheism. Because he realized that he did not have anything in his belief system that could account for what he just saw. First he realized that if there is no God, if we're all just a product of evolution, we're just a natural product of the strong eating the weak. We're just the evolutionary product of that process. And if the strong eat the weak, why shouldn't the strong nations eat the weak nations? It's just a natural extension of the theory of evolution. And so in his atheism, Auden had no basis for saying that what the Nazis were doing is wrong. At the overhead. In fact, he wrote this in his diary. He wrote this, the secular English intellectuals want to complain to heaven against the Nazis, but they don't believe in heaven. So there's no heaven to complain to anymore. <laughs> and the overhead. And then secondly, Auden came to realize that unless he had a belief in God and sin and demonic forces, 
He could not account for how normal, ordinary people could be sucked into a system and for the system to be so incredibly evil, even though most of the people in the system by themselves were not. Auden was right. It's impossible to account for all the sin and evil and wickedness and the things that people do in this world strictly by attributing it to to human factors. Strictly by saying, well, it's just bad choices or bad family nurture or inequitable distribution of wealth. That cannot account for it. It doesn't account for it. And if you move out into this world with a less complex and grave and solemn understanding of evil than what the Bible has, you are going to be defeated by it, by the evil. If you think we could just get ourselves together somehow, uh, get our best minds together, uh, get our best practices and our best social programs together, get the best technology, that we could deal with all our human problems. What this text here today in Mark is telling us is that no, you can't without God. Because you cannot attribute all the world's ills just to human mistakes and foibles and choices. Because there's also a supernatural demonic element as well. Do you see this? Do you understand this? On the overhead, that's the first point, the complexity of evil. Second, this text tells us about the pattern of how evil works in our life. Now, our English translations of the Bible talk about being demon-possessed. And I'm afraid this translation is going to give us all a false sense of security. <laughs> so we say, oh, those poor demon-possessed people. Thank God there's only a few of them. I've never seen anyone you know, demon-possessed, uh, like described here in Mark 5. The only problem is the actual Greek in the text never actually says demon-possessed. The actual text simply is the verb demonized. These are demonized people on the overhead. Now, don't forget what we just discussed. Paul says this. If you're proud, if you're bitter, if you're self-centered, you make yourself open to the influence of evil forces in this world that are seeking to sow chaos and strife and malice and envy and bitterness and resentment and false accusations and disunity and pride, and judgmentalism, and unforgiveness. And the overhead, they're trying to disintegrate what God wants together. Satan is seeking ways to disintegrate bodies, to disintegrate relationships, to disintegrate creation. Evil forces want to break apart what God wants together. On the overhead. And the scriptures say that when you're proud, and when you're selfish, and when you're judgmental or resentful, or when you're bitter and unforgiving, or when you hold a grudge, you are to some degree being influenced by these demonic forces and the overhead. And therefore, the difference between the demon-possessed and you and me is not a difference of quality, but only of quantity. Because the same patterns that are at work in our lives, they are at work here in our lives, as you see in the demon-possessed. So you might ask, well, well, David, what is this pattern? Let's take a look. Mark 5, verse 2. When Yeshua got out of the boat, a man with an unclean spirit came from the tombs to meet him. Now, to a Jew, the worst thing that could happen was to be declared unclean in the sight of God. The Torah is packed full of laws and rules and procedures for dealing with ceremonial uncleanliness. 
For example, Numbers 19 says if, if you touch a dead body, you're unclean for seven days, and you have to go through all these purification rites. And possession, of course, by an unclean spirit was probably the cheapest of all horrors. Now, Mark shows us that this demonic man was unclean in at least four different ways. First, we're told he had an unclean spirit, which actually turns out to be a whole legion of unclean spirits, evil spirits. Second, he lived among the tombs. He lived among the dead, the worst of all possible forms of uncleanliness from a Torah perspective. Third, he's living in the Decapolis, which is this Gentile region. And the Gentiles at the time were regarded as unclean. And fourth, he lived near where they raised pigs. <laughs> and pigs were considered the most unclean of all the animals. That's why Antiochus Epiphany sacrificed a pig on the altar. It was the ultimate insult. So to a Jewish reader, everything about this account shouts uncleanliness and defilement. Let's look at the next verse, Mark 5, verse 3. This man lived in the tombs. No one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he often had been chained hand and foot. When he tore the chains apart, he broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. Now, when you make a pact with evil, on the one hand, you are empowered. This man had superhuman strength. He tears the chains. He breaks the leg irons apart. Nobody can subdue him. He gets enormous power from this pact that he's made with evil. But at the same time, he's a slave. His humanity is being eaten away from the inside. He doesn't even know who he is. He's not in his right mind. Uh, he, he has multiple personalities living within him. Uh, so, so greater empowerment, yes, but also inner enslavement. Uh, and a loss of sense of self. And that's why, by the way, all the Faustian legends and stories, that's how they all go. You know, in the classic story first told, made famous by Christopher Marlowe, a Faust sells his soul to the devil in return for things like worldly knowledge and wealth and pleasure. And the story, of course, is retold many, many times through the centuries, most famously by, by the German writer Goethe uh, and later by Oscar Wilde. Uh, in America, it was popularized in the play The Devil and Daniel Webster and the Broadway musical Damn Yankees which is about uh, where Joe sells his soul to the devil to become the star baseball player who could beat the world-famous New York Yankees. <laughs> the point is, all these Faust legends and stories, uh, in these stories, you sell your soul to the devil for momentary success or fame or youth or beauty uh, or pleasure, but you end up enslaved and damned for all eternity. So you get power, uh, or youth, or athleticism, or, or beauty, or wealth, or knowledge, but you're a slave. And the overhead. In the same way, if you make anything more important to your meaning in life, more important to your self-image, more important to your sense of self-worth, uh, more important uh, to your happiness than the Lord, if you make anything to, that's you, you're, to yourself, your life, more important than Yeshua, it becomes your master. You have made a pact with it. And the overhead. And you can tell me all you want. Oh, David, I believe in Yeshua. I believe in God. But I'm talking about your heart. What does your heart center on? What's the real thing that makes you want to get up in the morning? What's the real thing that drives you? What's the real thing that makes you feel great about yourself? Whatever it is, is your master. 
Becky Pippers on the overhead, she says in her book, Out of the Salt Shaker, she writes this. People who, who seek, the person who seeks power is controlled by power. The person who seeks acceptance is controlled by those they want to please. But one thing is certain, no one controls themselves. We're controlled by whatever we make the Lord of our lives. You've made a pact with someone. You think you're in charge of your life, but you're not. And whatever's at the center of your life, the main thing you're seeking, the, the thing where you say, if I had that, then I'd be okay. If I have that, then I'd be happy. Then my life would have meaning. Whatever you center your life on, you've made a pact with it. Let's take one obvious example. Let's talk, how about your career? Regardless of, of your religious beliefs, if the main thing you give your life to is your career, that's how you know you're special. That's what makes you feel good about yourself. That's what gives you meaning in life. On the one hand, this pact will give you power. You'll be driven. You'll probably do better than other people in your field who, who, who aren't as driven as you are, who haven't made this same pact. These other people, they also, they also may want to be like you, uh, this great musician or artist or an actor or an athlete uh, or businessman or woman uh, or stockbroker or realtor uh, or doctor or a lawyer uh, or an engineer. But they don't want it quite as much as you because for you, it's everything. So on the one hand, you'll probably do better than them because you'll be driven. Uh, you'll do whatever it takes to move up the ladder. But on the other hand, you'll be a slave. A slave. Several reasons. Number one, you'll, there's a tendency when your career is the most important thing for you, for you to exploit other people and to trample on them on your way up. So you make lots of enemies. Secondly, a greater possibility, you'll cut ethical corners, which, you, which later on will haunt you. Thirdly, you'll just be driven into the ground physically. So even though in the short run you'll do well, in the long run it'll drive you into the ground. Fourth, you'll put career over relationships. You'll put career over your spouse. You'll put career over your family. You'll put career over spiritual fellowship and community. You'll put career over everything and then find out later on that you've squandered all your opportunities to build lasting relationships and friendships and family ties and community. And so more and more, you'll find yourself enslaved. Because if anything is more, if anything is more important to you than Yeshua, uh, as your functional happiness, uh, as your functional meaning in life, uh, as your functional hope, that is a Faustian bargain. That is a pact with the devil. And if you do this, if you put anything other than Yeshua and the practical, operational, functional priority in your life, you're moving into this Faustian realm. Do you see this pattern of how subtly, how subconsciously evil operates in your life? It's ultimately no different than this gathering demoniac. It's just a matter of degree. But it's also where Mark says here in Mark 5, 5, verse 3. This man lived in the tombs. Nobody could bind him anymore. Which also teaches us that evil is gradual. The pattern of evil, it's a pattern of greater empowerment, but also enslavement 
is gradual as well. In the beginning, you feel power, but slowly you become more and more enslaved. And evil, it rarely comes at you frontally. It creeps up on you. It crouches at your door. The devil never comes right at you, comes right out and says, let's make a deal. <laughs> no, and I know, yes, that's how the, the Faustian legends, that's how they work. That's really not the way it happens in real life. <laughs> the devil doesn't come to you openly and say, you know, sell your soul to me uh, and you can make partner. <laughs> but, but you have to serve me uh, and grind the faces of the poor. Doesn't use these obviously. You know, you can make executive VP of your company, but only if you help me market and produce all these products that exploit vulnerable families. The devil's not that obvious. He's much more subtle, much more indirect. And slowly, bit by bit, without even realizing what's happening, you can be sucked into one of these systems of evil that do grind people into the ground. And you have become part of it without even realizing it. You become a pawn of the devil. Like what? The devil, he doesn't come and blatantly say, I'm going to give you such an obsession with your career that your spouse and your family and your loved ones will all eventually leave you. No, it doesn't work that way. And yet over time, you could end up in the tombs, cutting yourself and wonder, and wondering, how in the world did I ever get here? And the answer is gradually. Gradually. On the overhead. So the first we learn the complexity of evil, and then number two, the pattern of how evil works in your life. Number three, how then can we defeat this evil? If we're all, to some degree, we're all participating uh, in these various patterns of evil, because none of us... Uh, centers 100% completely on the Lord and puts our hearts to rest totally in Yeshua and Yeshua alone, well, how then are we going to defeat evil in our life? And the answer is this on the overhead. We defeat evil, number one, by recognizing the source of the power we need to defeat evil. And then number two, connecting to that power. Well, who is the source? Yeshua, of course. Good Mark 5, verse 6. When he saw Yeshua from a distance, he ran, fell on his knees in front of him. Here's a man who's possessed by a legion of demons. A Roman legion varied in numbers over time. But in Yeshua's day, it was typically 4,000 to 6,000 men. But when this man, possessed by this legion of demons, gets into the presence of God, there is no struggle. Immediately, he's on his knees. And the most interesting thing, Yeshua simply says, come out. <laughs> now, in the, in the literature of, of the ancient Near East, we've got all kinds of, of examples and instructions for how to cast out demons and how to, ex- how to exorcise uh, evil spirits. But what Yeshua does here is absolutely unprecedented. There's nothing like it anywhere else in all of ancient literature. Because anytime anyone ever tries to deal with a devil, deal with a demon... They always call on a higher power. They always call upon a higher power. And the fact is, it's kind of ironic, kind of comedic twist here. The devil tries to do this to Yeshua. (laughs) Look at Mark chapter 5, verse 6. When he saw Yeshua from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him and then shouted to the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Yeshua, son of the most high God? Swear to God that you won't torture me. Or in the King James Version, the man or the demon within the man says, I adjure you by God, do not torture me. 
that's actually a form of an exorcism. I adjure you before God. This demon is calling on a higher power. <laughs> the demon's trying to exorcise Yeshua. <laughs> because any, everyone who ever tries to do an exorcism of a hostile power always calls upon a higher power. But Yeshua alone does never calls upon a higher power. He doesn't say, by the most high God, come out of him. Never. Yeshua does not call upon a higher power because he is the higher power. Hallelujah. And if you remember from last week, that's the same way he dealt with the hurricane. Uh, and that's the same way here he deals with 6,000 demons, the same way and then with the same ease he deals with one demon. He doesn't work up a sweat. He doesn't roll up his sleeves. He doesn't say, stand back. <laughs> he doesn't say, I adjure you. He doesn't call on a higher power. He simply says, come out. Now, what does this mean? As I said, he doesn't call on a higher power because he is the higher power. He is power itself. He is power himself. Divine power incarnate. And so even though there's a legion of 6,000 demons, Yeshua is in total control. The legions can't do anything without his permission. This, this army, literal army of demons, meets Yeshua, there's absolutely no contest. There's not even a struggle. The demons must obey. So Yeshua has absolute power, and he casts out this legion of demons, and this kind of interesting story gives them permission to go into these pigs. By the way, that's the first example we have in all the literature of deviled ham. <laughs> So, so what do we learn here on the overhead? That's my joke for today. <laughs> we learn, number one, when Yeshua defeats evil in your life, do you better not try to tell him what the game plan is going to be. Because you have no idea. Because Yeshua knows things you don't know. He has his own way of doing things. Don't try to tell him how it has to happen. Because he's going to almost always surprise you. Number two, with the destruction of these pigs, what Yeshua is telling us is that all the wealth in the world, these pigs were valuable, all the wealth in the world isn't worth one human soul. In order to save a human soul, if you have to lose a fortune, so what? Even all of your wealth is not worth losing your eternal soul. Mark 8, verse 36. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? But what can a man give in return for his soul? So Yeshua has the ultimate power. He casts out these demons. Now, how do you and I actually connect with that? Now, one of the problems we have here is this very word evil. You know, the Jews in the first century, we consider, they consider the source of all their problems in the first century to be the Romans. And the Romans were seen as unclean pigs. And so our Jewish people would say, if you're the Messiah, Yeshua, the best thing you can do for us is to go into this region of the Gentiles, into this region of the Romans. That's where this was, by the way, the Decapolis. It was a region of ten Gentile cities on the east side of the Sea of Galilee where they raised pigs, which Jews would never do. So, Yeshua, if you're the Messiah, go into this Roman Gentile world who are like unclean pigs to us, and you should just cast them all into the sea and get out your sword and hack them, hack them to pieces and liberate Israel. But what does Yeshua do? He goes into this Roman Gentile area 
And instead, he heals a Gentile man. He does not get out his sword. Instead, he sets this demonized Gentile free. You see, here's the problem with too quickly writing someone off as evil. Here's the problem with saying, if we just got rid of these Romans, everything would be fine. They're the evil ones. We're the good ones. But Yeshua doesn't do that, does he? On the overhead. Instead, when Yeshua goes there, he shows us that the legions that are really causing our problems are not somewhere out there. They're inside of us. And by healing this Gentile, Yeshua is saying, and I'm here paraphrasing Solzhenitsyn on the overhead here, the line between good and evil goes right down the middle of every human heart. We are not to glibly and arrogantly and self-righteously identify them out there as evil, and of course, myself as the good. Don't you dare fall into that prideful trap. That's the devil's snare. We're to take the beam out of our own eye before worrying about the speck in our brother's eye. So we're not just supposed to just smite everybody who we think is evil, which just perpetuates the cycle of violence. No, Yeshua, he goes right into the lion's den, but what does he do? He ministers to and he preaches to the lions. <laughs> he goes right into this unclean region of tombs and corpses and pigs uh, and demon-possessed madmen and, and Gentiles and Romans, and he heals and liberates one of them. So what are we supposed to do about evil? When Yeshua went into this demon-possessed realm, he healed the man. And then afterwards, uh, what does it say about the man? Look at Mark 5, verse 15. When they came to Yeshua, they saw the man who who had been possessed by the legion of demons, sitting there, clothed, and in his right mind. Hallelujah. But do you know what? At the end of the book of Mark... If we ever get there, we're going to see Yeshua and this man, as it were, changing places. At the end of the book of Mark, Yeshua is the one who's naked, stripped of his clothes. At the end of the book of Mark, Yeshua is bound. At the end of the book of Mark, Yeshua is the one crying out and cut and bleeding. At the end of the book of Mark, Yeshua is driven driven into the tombs, into the tomb. That is how Yeshua dealt with evil. You know, if he had taken out his sword and began smiting the Romans and driving them into the sea, he would have bought a temporary bit of political liberation for a few people for a few years. But instead, what Yeshua did is that he absorbed the evil and the injustice and the sin and the death into himself. He died on the cross to pay for your sins and mine. So that someday he could wipe out evil without also wiping out us. And that's the secret of how evil is defeated in your life. On the overhead. Because only when you actually see what it cost him to defeat evil. What it cost him so that someday he could destroy evil without destroying you. So that he could heal you like, like he did to the demoniac. So that he could come into your life in spite of all the wrong things you've done. When you begin to see the cost, when you see him naked and being willing to be, to be driven into the tomb for you, that shows you how much he loves you. This shows you your infinite value to him. And therefore, you don't have to look at your career or, or your beauty or achievement or wealth or anything else and say, I need that and then I'll know who I am. Rather, it's seeing 
the infinite cost that he paid in order to defeat evil, that is what defeats evil in your life. It's only when you see the cost of what he did for you. It's only when you see how much he loved you. It's only when you, when you see him being driven into the tombs and stripped naked and crying out and him bleeding. When you see him doing that for you, you know how much you're loved. And then you can truly know and say, I am loved by the Lord. Uh, I am delighted in. Uh, and, I, and now you can look at these good things that you've tried to turn into ultimate things. And now the pact with the devil is over. Now your career, it's just a career. It's not your righteousness. It's not your glory. It's not your beauty. It's nothing else either. And that destroys the power of these things over your life. On the overhead. It's only if you see what Yeshua actually did with evil. He didn't smite people. Rather, he forgave them. At at infinite cost to himself. If you don't see what he did to defeat evil in your life. If you think... Those people are the evil ones. I'm the good. You'll just become part of the evil. You'll be duck soup for the devil. You'll just be sucked into this endless cycle of retaliation and vengeance. And you won't be defeating evil at all. You'll become part of it. We're told in Romans 12 verse 17. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Don't be overcome by evil. But overcome evil with good. I don't care how messed up you are. Look how messed up this guy was. (laughs) Look how broken he was. Yeshua sends him back to his own land as a vehicle and an agent of redemption and healing. As a witness to the gospel, to the the power of Yeshua. As a living testimony that Yeshua has come to set the captives free. Yeshua says to him, Mark 5 verse 19. Go home to your own people. Tell them how much the Lord has done for you. And how he's had mercy on you. So the man went away. And began to tell in the Decapolis how much Yeshua had done for him. And all the people were amazed. And note that the demoniac, he cannot be this great witness and evangelist. Not despite the fact that he had been a mess. But because of the fact that he had been such a mess. And Yeshua healed him. And set him free. No matter how messed up you think you are. Plunge your messed upness into Yeshua's grace. And you can be a great witness for Yeshua the Messiah in proclaiming his gospel. Amen. Let's stand and pray. Hallelujah. And let's ask Rifka uh, to come up as well. Hallelujah. Thank you, Father. Thank you today for showing us that evil is not only out there, which it is, but also in here, in me as well. Uh, that if I'm proud or bitter or unforgiving, that I fall into the trap of the devil. Uh, and I give him a foothold in my life. And thank you for showing me also that political and social systems, especially those that strangle our freedoms and censor our speech and persecute believers, that these systems are demonic and they must be opposed. Help me to take to heart this pattern of evil. That if I make anything more important to my self-image or to my sense of self-worth or to my happiness or my meaning in life than you, Yeshua, it becomes my master. I become its slave. I've made a pact with it. Lord, I renounce all such pacts. I throw myself on your mercy and submit my life wholly and completely to you. 
Lord, today, set this captive free. Loose the chains that bind me. I only want to serve you, Yeshua. I turn from my sin. I turn from myself. I turn from my bitterness and resentment. And I turn from my grudges and unforgiveness. And I turn wholly to you. Let my life be like a whole burnt offering. Offered wholly to you. Thank you, Yeshua. You defeated Satan and all the powers of hell on the cross. You are absolutely the ultimate of all power and authority. And you paid a costly, costly price for my freedom. And so, Lord, I worship you today. And I pray all this in your holy name, B'Shem Yeshua. Amen. Shabbat Shalom.